The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain. Want to make a podcast? Let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters, and it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number 24. Altitude. Altitude. Tower 26 is released to runway 411 at 5. Clear for takeoff. Sea tide. Altitude is We're clear for takeoff. Clear for the airspace. Fire protector. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for listening. This episode is made with Major Jeff Bender Page. He's an F 35 pilot. He has been an F 16 instructor pilot as well as an F 16 evaluator. He has deployments to Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan, and he's done a little bit of work. We're not going to talk about his career today. Instead, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into the previous episode, episode 23, the Shaw Air Force Base mishap that resulted in the loss of life of Lieutenant David Smits. Um, again, if you're looking to support that a good cause and a good organization, go over to lieutenantsmits.org. Uh, I have that linked on the afterburnpodcast.com as well as an additional page in there which talks uh, about F- it has the accident investigation board report on there. It talks about F-16 landing with a few graphics and videos on there. So if you're looking for some more content, you can go to afterburnpodcast.com. You can find the link for uh, Mezzer's foundation there. Um, again, swing over there and you can have a little bit more context, which is the goal of this episode. I debated uh, and actually recorded episode 23 twice. I didn't know if I was going to do it um, because it, hits relatively close to home still know a lot of the parties involved and it's one of those uh, you don't want to be a monday morning quarterback because people are going through some hell um this episode how i wanted bender to come on in so we could have another perspective and really kind of build a little bit bigger picture as far as what was going on around that mishap now neither one of us were there um so that's full disclosure it comes along with it but i think And when you listen to the episode, you can definitely appreciate the fact that I think both of us could have found ourselves in that situation uh, in any any point of that mishap there. Um, So my heart goes out to Mezzer's family. And again, you know, hope to prevent something like this in the future. We all can learn from it and be better and stronger from it. Before we get into the episode, I'd like to thank all those who've gone over to iTunes and subscribed and hit uh, the five-star review. If you haven't done so, please... Uh, consider going over, take the 10 seconds to hit a five-star review and drop uh, a word. It can just be one word uh, in the review there because uh, that helps the podcast expand its reach, uh, expand the number of people it reaches, which definitely helps the podcast grow. Just hit a year 
with 160,000 downloads. So again, I'm very appreciative of everyone who's been following along on the journey. I've enjoyed it and hopefully you have as well. I also like to thank my Patreon supporters. They've helped the podcast grow, venturing into video podcasts. So the YouTube site is up um, and is slowly growing. So you'll start seeing more content up there um, as well as Patreon supporters get exclusive content and access as well as priority for the question and answer sessions, which are going to start dropping here very soon. You can swing over to patreon.com backslash the afterburn podcast. If you want more information or if you're looking to support the podcast. With that being said, let's get into the episode with Bender as we break down further from episode number 23, F-16 mishap at Shaw Air Force Base. Well, I'm excited. I got my good buddy, Jeff Bender Page. He is a uh, you know, fighter pilot extraordinaire. Bender, would you tell everyone just like a 30-second you know, elevator pitch of who you are, like where you started and kind of what you're doing today? Yeah, sounds good. Uh, it's funny because I listened to a couple of your podcasts with my kids in preparation for talking to you. Uh, so Ben was like, what's an elevator speech? I was like, oh, you talk yourself up, you know, to explain. He's like, you don't need an elevator speech. You need, a, you know, maybe some stairs will do. Like, oh, it hurts a little bit, Ben. That's awesome. Uh, it's kind of true, though. So I, you know, with you, that's where I met you, obviously, was the first part of the career being a T6 instructor pilot in uh, Columbus, Mississippi. Uh, so I, I was an ROTC graduate initially from Brigham Young University. Uh, wanted to be a pilot, so I got my pilot spot to Columbus. I went through pilot training. Uh, you know, it was a great experience. It didn't, uh, as you know, you know, the, the Air Force goes through cycles. So uh, the cycles were doing some weird stuff at that time. So we ended up being fakes together in the T6, which was an awesome assignment. Uh, out of there, I got an F-16. Went to B course at Luke, uh, and then got my follow-on assignment to Masao, Japan, which was, so both those assignments, the one in Mississippi and the one in Japan were not what I had envisioned in like my dream, dream, like <laughs> pilot career. Right. Uh, but both ended up being pretty amazing times. Masao was just, you know, I couldn't have asked for a better place to learn to be a fighter pilot and to deploy for the first time to go through an instructor upgrade, all those things. I mean, it's a challenging environment. Uh, pretty unique as far as where it's located uh, in Japan, let alone in the world. So it was a it was an awesome experience. And then uh, followed that up, rejoined you back at Shaw in South Carolina, where I spent my last three years of active duty uh, flying Block 50s there in the, the Gamblers. Uh, jumped out of the active duty into the reserves. Spent a year doing part time reserves there at Shaw, and then uh, I I flew for Delta for that time to try to set up the bridge between military career and then what was going to happen after the military with the airlines uh, and then i timed everything pretty well uh accidentally of course um, <laughs> i went back to an active assignment uh to transition over to the f-35 right before COVID 19 kind of swept the legs out from underneath airlines uh this past spring so i was able to get a full back to a full-time job in the air force up at hill air force base in utah where i am now and uh that's what i'm doing now for the next three years i have orders uh, so we'll spend time raging around in Fat Amy, yeah. as we call her. Well, some people call her. Some people don't like that term, but it's <laughs> it is, pretty appropriate, honestly. <laughs> it is what it is, right? No, I, I'm yeah. super, super humble because you've, you've accomplished a lot. F-16 instructor pilot, F-16 evaluator, now flying the F-35. So you're doing a bunch. And I'll say the funny story I have is, uh, or one of them, 
because I have many with you, uh, but stands out is when you're Misawa time, right? Like it's always snowing up there and you guys are used to that. Like I had never seen snow in an Air Force airplane. And I remember flying, getting ready for the Super Bowl flyover, and I'm in the Minneapolis, and it is just, I'm watching 12 snow plows go down the runway, and I'm wondering, <laughs> yeah. can I go fly? Uh, and you were the guy I called to, like, talk about, like, de-icing and stuff. And even funnier than that is talking to Blitz, the former commander afterwards. And I was like, yeah, I just ran the de-icing checklist, acting like I knew what I was talking about because I'd gotten it from you. He's like, we have one of those? You know, yeah. so someone who's been in the F-16 <laughs> for 20 yeah. years. Um so yeah, super accomplished, and I appreciate you joining me here. Something a little bit different today, you know, you and I talked a little bit about, and this is an idea that spurred kind of over the past like couple days, um, but the feedback from last episode, Mezzer's Mishap. So if you haven't listened to that episode, you're going to go listen to that, where I went through the Accident Investigation Board's report of Mezzer's Mishap at Shaw in June of 2020, which resulted in the loss of life. Um, I really, I went back and forth on doing that episode if I wanted to do it or not. And I ended up, I actually recorded it twice. The second iteration, it's purely just me going through the accident investigation report, kind of breaking down some of the terms. Um, and I had a few people ask that I did, it was kind of surface level and that was intentional, but I wanted to be able to go through it at a little bit deeper level and have someone with a little bit more credibility than myself. So that's why I picked you. Uh, but we could kind of go through that accident report and maybe add a little bit of context around it because obviously it is factual and that's what we want out of those reports. Um, and it's definitely beyond surface level, but I think adding a little bit of context around it would be helpful for some people who are familiar or even unfamiliar with it. So we've decided to kind of dig into that. We'll see where this goes. Um, again, this is kind of uncharted territory, I think for, for both of us, because we definitely know parties involved. So, there's, there's a few lines that we definitely don't want to cross, but uh, again, I think there's a lot of value that's in this that we can add to it. So buckle up. Awesome. That's good. <laughs> yeah, here we go. We have a lot of angry friends probably. <laughs> well, you know, I mean. Hopefully not. No, I think this, over, I mean, I, overall, like when I heard about the mishap, obviously there's a lot of questions, and then reading the accident investigation report, we talk about the Swiss cheese model as far as accidents go, you know, all those pieces of Swiss cheese have to line up and then the hole, you just, you know, shoot the hole, shoot the gap there, so to speak. Um, and this is definitely one of those where you're talking about, you know, this guy who is, you know, new to the jet, not flying a bunch. Um, you know, the tolerance for error in a fast moving jet left or right, when you're going that fast, one little mistake um, can result and a fatality, right? Where in going slower speeds or doing other things, it's going to result in a band-aid, right? So the tolerance for error is much smaller when it comes to it. And unfortunately, this is what he gets painted into. I think backing it up, like the environment, um, you know, the Air Force is going through a bunch of changes as far as pilot training, streamlining the syllabi that go into it. Um, I don't know. In that report, it doesn't encompass his training syllabi what it took for him to get there other than the fact that he had never refueled. And that's why I think the big takeaway. So the first time measure is going in there and he is tanking at night. First time he's tanking is at night. And also in here is COVID, right? So the guys aren't flying a bunch. So there's a lot of contributing factors that kind of roll into this. Um, yeah. I don't know like what your, kind of your initial thoughts are when you read it, like, red flags or concerns or just general thoughts? 
Yeah, definitely. The what you don't get from AIDs, right, is the context of the, you know, the environment that he, that not only him but the other players in the accident, commander and the instructor cadre in the squadron. You know, none of that really comes out like you're like you're saying. We don't really understand, or you don't get the feeling of the background uh, for it all. So it is easy to read it and to, to notice the big errors that were made. Like how could we, you know, how did each of those errors get made? First of all, individually, like it, some of them seem pretty, you know, blatant, but the fact that they're all made in sequence or whatever, like you said, to line up uh, so that it ends up in a mishap. It's, but when you understand the context of it, the context of it, uh, you know, you can see that honestly, we're lucky. I think in a lot of ways, this, this doesn't happen as often yeah. as it probably could happen. So uh, I remember when the first pilot came, the first pilot I was aware of at least, I was working in the uh, OGB shop. So the uh, operations group commander has a Stanny bow. So the guy who's basically in charge of linking him with the, the squadrons as far as the emergency procedures, the setup of the airfield for how it's going to deal with those um, different procedures, not just emergencies, but standardizing all the different procedures and so when one of our new pilots came i'll say yeah you're, you're the so guy yeah, you're doing the, you're doing all the check rides for those listening like i mean you kind of downplay the ogv role yeah. but you're the guy who's yeah setting the tone i mean obviously from the commander but you're the evaluator yeah that's the intent of that position yeah anybody <laughs> knows me obviously <laughs> like, what is he doing there uh yeah that that's right uh and so we got the first pilot out of B course and he hadn't done tanking. And so this, the, the broader air force context this time is there's this very significant fighter pilot shortage. It's been happening for years. Uh, they had come up with different task force and stuff on how they were going to try to treat some of the losses of, of the experience level leaving the air force. Um, as well as how are they going to increase the pipeline to get students through to into the fighter squadron. So that's kind of where we are, broad picture uh, in the Air Force. So we're starting to get these students from pilot training or from the F-16B course who haven't done some of these fundamental uh, things that, honestly, the, the CAF, the combat squadrons, aren't prepared to do, like tanking. Like, none of us has ever taken the backseat of an aircraft. That's a very specific uh, skill set that only instructors are given in the basic course, you know, at Luke Air Force Base or Holloman Air Force Base. So here we're getting this, these guys, and they don't have to do it from, you know, a two-seat F-16. It's not required. But there's no way for us to know whether this guy is going to be ready to do it in his single-seat aircraft or if he's going to need extra instruction. And There's nobody there that can give that extra instruction anyway. So it was a problem that we, you know, we were a little bit shocked that that was going to be put on the lap of the combat air forces uh, and we weren't sure you know exactly how to deal with it the first couple guys that went through it ended up not being an issue and you know you've experienced plenty of times tanking like it can be a smooth great day where things are going really well for not only for the f-16 pilot but also for the kc-135 pilot and the boom operator right um and so it's not you know not a terribly big issue um or it can be circumstances that are incredibly challenging like weather uh, bad weather, bad boom operator, you know, all those things can contribute to that. So uh, it just, like you said, the Swiss cheese model, like the first couple of times there wasn't an issue, but, you know, in this particular case, as we're going to see, as we talk about it, you know, it, that was actually a significant issue. It didn't directly affect probably the way 
or at least it wasn't directly linked to when he struck his uh, left strut. Um, but it definitely played into his, the, his mental processing after the failure feeling. Uh, so my point being like the broad picture of the Air Force is we're starting to rush things, or at least that's the feeling that the, the CAF has, the Combat Air Forces has, is that we're rushing things on the training side of the house. And some of that slack is, needs to now be picked up by the, the combat squadrons who honestly aren't, they're not made to do that kind of stuff. They're not necessarily prepared or have the right syllabuses or syllabi in place to, to do it. So it brings up some, some interesting questions. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I remember specifically the, the director of operations I had when I first showed up to Shaw. So brand new dude out of the B course. He was a weapons school instructor, one of the best instructors I've ever had. Um, and I think he was like the weapons school instructor of the year, like two times in a row. So he knows everything about tactics and how to fly the F-16. And I was sitting in a debrief with someone else and he's like looking at their tapes and he goes, yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's like a, that'd be a pretty new guy thing to do. Like he just, like he was at such a different level, such an advanced level that the basic stuff, and I could say this, I mean, the same thing That's apples and oranges, right? But if I had to go teach someone to fly a Cessna right now and I've done that, I'm like, there's so many things that I don't know about this small plane that I, I can't teach you that just are not applicable in the stuff that I fly today. So, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting that that's been transposed, but it also compounding factor, I think the tempo of ops, like that hasn't changed is in fact, it's ramped up. Um, and I almost like draw a mirror. So, you know, we had a mishap in our squadron when I was deployed in, in 2014 and the events leading up to that, you know, to the deployment, everything was rushed. We're trying to get so many people through qualifications. I imagine that had to be somewhat the same scenario here, but magnified with the fact that they're behind because COVID has ramped down flying operations for a few months, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I remember you know, I was there when you got to Jordan, you ripped our squadron out. So we kind of crossed paths there for a little bit. And, I knew Pyro uh, from a previous life, but the same, th you know, it's, it's just interesting. I mean, Pyro is a super experienced instructor pilot. Uh, I don't think anybody would doubt his capabilities. His path was, you know, going to be a, probably a very powerful uh, leader in the F-16 community. Uh, and then, but you just, I mean, like you said, it, things happen very fast. The airplanes are unforgiving. Jordan was, you know, an unforgiving environment to fly in, especially with combat operations going on. The airfield was, again, it's not made up to the standard that we're used to in the United States. There's all these compounding factors that you just can't identify each one as possible. And it, it definitely becomes much more difficult to do that, like you're saying, in, a, in an ops tempo that is, uh, you know, that is rushed or kind of unsustainable. COVID-19, I, I don't think we really understand yet or have seen all the ramifications of what that did to flying it's a little bit similar to back in 2012 and 13 i think when they when we had sequestration and they started to slow down ops in a lot of squadrons and it slowed down ops in a lot of squadrons uh but that also meant that other squadrons had to pick up a lot of the tempo because we still had to meet requirements you know downrange and stuff so when you start to introduce things like that uh the destabilized squadrons like we, we just can't identify all the little pieces that are 
either getting missed or that start to kind of fall to the wayside and you focus on other things. And so it just creates more, more and more, you know, little things that can go wrong uh, that can lead to some of these mishaps. And so Shaw, I think, Shaw has traditionally been a place where the ops tempo uh, can get out of hand, I think, yeah. in a lot, of, a lot of cases. So uh, at the time, you know, I was just a reservist at the time of this accident. Uh, in fact, I, I left about a month or so after Mesra got there. So I remember... I remember him getting to the squatter, you know, chatting in the bar, uh, complaining about his jalapeno popcorn, burning the jalapenos. <laughs> uh, so, but, but we never flew together. Um, but the tempo at the time, you know, it, it was a great squad. It is a great squatter, honestly. Like, awesome leadership, awesome instructor cadre. Uh, very, you know, driven to be very tactical in what they're doing. Um, they're also set to, you know, deploy later that year. So there's a lot of excitement about the future and stuff, but I can't imagine what COVID, you know, the going from that super high energy, getting in a good rhythm of training and then just stopping it, you know, which is what happened, I think, uh, you know, and that, and so guys like measure and, you know, the less experienced guys, they don't have stuff to fall back on, uh, experience to fall back on when things are changing and, uh, and a little bit unstable. So I think he had only flown two missions, right. In the previous, previous month to the accident, uh, for the previous two months prior or something. So very few amount of flights, uh, for a fighter pilot, you know, especially an inexperienced yep. fighter pilot, every time, even me in the F 16 with, you know, a ton of hours, years flying it. If I went even a couple weeks, you know, I'd go fly a Delta trip and come back and I would sit in the airplane and I would have to take, you know, 10 to 20 seconds to just remember or to think through like, okay, how exactly am I going to start this thing? Or like, what am I looking for now as I throw this switch, you know, yep. but I had all that experience I could look back on, you know, in the habit patterns, uh, measure guys like measure, you know, who are brand new to an airplane, like that's, that stuff just isn't there. And so there's a lot of, you know, you can just not necessarily that he missed specific stuff or anything, obviously, but it just becomes much more challenging, much more draining. Uh, mentally and, and all that stuff. So I think you nailed it. I think the the destabilizing effect of high operations tempo versus all, like shut it down real quick versus how do we get back to high operations tempo, all that stuff has effects uh, for, certainly for, you know, the pilots who are flying in the squadron. Yeah, and that's one thing that I think you and I honestly say, you take us and you put us in that environment, it'd be the exact same thing. Like this is not a Monday morning quarterback it, right. Like I could very easily see myself in any one of those positions. In fact, I've been there. And I remember you know, like my first like night tanking in combat, like that was probably where 90% of my energy went to was just trying to, you know, figure out where I was spatially in relation to everything in the AOR and then getting on the tanker, you know, and then where are we going next? What frequencies? And that was a lot of brain bites that were being burned doing that. Um, and up to that point, we had a good amount of reps, right. But you're, I didn't have a whole lot of experience to fall back onto, you know, but by, you know, the end of the month, right. That was like just putting on your pants and, and going to work. Like you didn't think about it, but you had to get those reps in order to be at that point. Um, and so this is, I mean, this is a really challenging spot to be in. And I think the fact that Shaw is so busy and again, everyone there is a type a mission oriented and they have a line in the sand with an objective they have to hit to get out the door to go do the mission. So they're going to push and do everything they can in order to do it. I will say, you know, they had 
identify the fact that, hey, this is a, um, you know, risky s- situation. So in the AIB, it does outline they went back to the basics. They had, you know, a push to go back to the basics. And again, I remember doing something similar to it. But, you know, that's a, just a, the highlight to the squadron. I'm sure there was a pilot meeting about it, probably an email about it. And then in every flight briefing, they're going to talk about just the basics, which is, you know, takeoff, landing, refueling, the admin portion of the fights or the, you know, the flight that we normally don't think about. So there was an emphasis on it. But again, um, everyone in the squadron is rusty or could be rusty because of just the lack of flying. We can make that assumption. Um, but for an inexperienced guy, not getting those reps is definitely going to be challenging. At least it would be for me. Like I know for a fact, just not getting those reps would be challenging. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Same, um, same. Yeah, it's you know, and, and you go through it. So obviously he can't get gas. Um, he and his flight lead, his element lead, they come back to Shaw, and you know, I know he, he verbalizes over his over the radio that he's frustrated. Element lead tries to make it lighthearted, um, and again, I know that I don't, I know the element lead right. If I was that spot, like he he's trying to make it lighthearted because Mezzer's got the weight of the world on his shoulders. I would imagine because. He knows that mission is ineffective because he couldn't get gas. That's a really tough spot to be in. Um, No fighter pilot wants to be the wedge or the guy that lets the team down. Um, And it's one of those things like you can tell that it's weighing on him based on the report and what they've identified in the HUD tape. Um, And then, you know, he comes back and makes one small error, right? Like I, I say it's a small error. We're talking a couple degrees, right? If you're talking a couple degrees, few thousand feet as well as 170 knots right like small mistake at that point it doesn't it doesn't bode well for you know Mezer and, and his aircraft right um and and going through this right uh you know they get into the the traffic pattern you know that i mean Mezer's mistake there right which is the causal factor for this mishap again that's something like I've had stuff go like, whew, that could have gone south on me, right? So, again, I can very easily place myself. And I think any fighter pilot that says they've never been in a spot where they, at the end of the story, like, you know, said, whew, that could have been bad, um, is probably lying. So, unfortunately, measures here is just on the the left side of the mistake, and it, it's one that results in damage to the aircraft and makes it really tough to recover. Um I think then going into, you know, they, they spend about 30 minutes going through the checklist and trying to resolve this issue. Um, you know, what stood out to me was the F-16 landing gear checklist. I had to go back and look at it, but I remember these from like the EP sims. Like this is a gnarly checklist. It is a long checklist and it is a complicated checklist. And you throw it at night, you throw it after uh, the tanking incident. And then one thing is, Mezzer's no knows he's bent metal, so that's got to be a, a just a huge amplifying factor as far as like what's going to happen now, uh, things like. So he's got a lot of weight on his shoulders as everyone's trying to troubleshoot this. Yeah, I think yeah, I think you made a great point. Especially you know, just even in the traffic pattern stuff, like you're saying that. I mean, it, every pilot knows, probably every Air Force pilot, because you kind of taught it in uh, pilot training, but. In the fighter world, for sure, you know, we talk about snowballing mistakes and errors and stuff. And so we don't even know where the, I mean, it could go back to his ground ops. It could go back to, 
the taxi out, the takeoffs on that could happen on takeoff. I mean, there's a lot of little things that could have bothered him and put him off his mental game, you know, just a little bit stuff that won't come out in the AIB, you know, so as he's getting to the tanker and he's flying information waiting for his turn to tank, like all these things are kind of compounding with this like difficult situation. And so there's a lot more than just the tanking that's probably weighing on him. I mean, it could go back to conversations. Like he feels a lot of pressure, like you were saying, like they're on a tight timeline to try to get out the door and deploy. He wants to be one of the guys who's going to go in just a couple short months. So he knows that this ride has to get done in order for him to be MQT complete and like mission qualified to go. I mean, so there's just that context of all that pressure that's on him uh, leads to very easily snowballing uh, your thought processes. Right. So like you're saying, like on that approach, you know, he's stable. It talks about the AIB. He's stable on the ILS. Everything's looking really good. He break, he's out of the weather. He can see the runway environment just fine. And so, you know, flying the ILS in the weather is a little bit taxing. So maybe, you know, in my experience, at least like when things are clearly, you know, a little bit difficult, it's, it's a little bit easier to focus. Like I really need to nail this ILS. As soon as he breaks out of the weather and again, just, just going back to me, like I can, I can see, like, I wouldn't take that like nice XL, like, okay. Yeah. see the run of my environment so maybe i have time now to think about like the things that i've done wrong you know now to think about like oh, this sucks that i screwed up right the tanking couldn't do it anyway so he starts to get down you know other uh trains of thought or whatever but obviously that's not the time to do it but that's also you know the time that that happens a lot for a lot of us and so it can very quickly like you said like turn into maybe, you know, we catch it or we've caught it in our past experiences, but this particular time he didn't catch, you know, that his uh, flight path marker was, you know, and he, and he can't see the details. Obviously it's night. So he just sees lights, not the height of the lights or anything like that. So I think the snowball effect is definitely something that's going on for him. And then to hit, I mean, I don't know if even taxiing the F-16 at like 20 knots and you hit a funny bump or you even go over like the cable, you know, like I don't, every time it like puts a little like, you know, it's a little jolting or whatever. Anything that's not smooth yeah. and what you're expecting in a fighter airplane is scary. And so I can't even imagine what it felt like to hit something, you know, foreign with your landing gear that you're not expecting. And it's night like that is terrifying. So the next, you know, getting off the ground, like, thank goodness they were able to get off the ground, get start working the checklist and stuff. But I, you know, having the mental discipline then to, to like calm your thoughts down and to settle down and then to get into this, like you said, this checklist that is a monster. I mean, throughout my entire F-16 flying and F-35 flying, honestly, like the big fear was at the end of the mission, I would have a certain amount of, you know, like not that much gas left and I'd throw down landing gear and it would show something that I was not expecting. <laughs> right. That checklist is not something that you can just like run simply. No. Uh, it's not always very clear and, 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 odd, and I know even from my experience at the Viper that there are lots of landing configurations and stuff that I didn't have an answer for yet. Like it was going to take a lot of like digging through it, trying to figure it out. So, I mean, I can't imagine again, like going back to the context of like what's going on in this cockpit. It's, it's not, you know, it's, it's not simple. It's not as easy as just like, Oh, read this checklist. Like, Oh, now I should, you know, not to like minimize what the AIB's findings are and stuff, but it's not as simple a thing that's going on yeah. between those two cockpits like to talk about the coordination between his element lead and him and the soft like 
those are all really challenging things to be able to communicate effectively together uh, and to talk about things that are not super clear, uh, even as you're reading them out of, out of checklist. And he's trying to do this and it's dark in his cockpit and he's close to the ground because he's in the landing pattern. He's trying to follow his element lead around. So he still has some sort of, you know, the deconfliction is probably pretty well set, but he doesn't get a throw on the kind of autopilot that you and I are used to in like right. the airline world, right? So he's still flying, hand flying at night with this, you know, pretty big deal uh, damage to his aircraft. And, and at the same time, he's got this dark cockpit with this checklist that doesn't stay open to the page that you want to stay open to. You got to look down and like with your flashlight and read one line at a time, try to follow with your fingers. Like, so this is the kind of environment that is that even that most experienced and confident fighter pilots we don't want this kind of we don't want to be here for sure uh, yeah. i don't want to ever be there obviously so i can again like the context of it is it's pretty rich you know it's it's a difficult place to be yeah i think so to circle back because you you hit a several really i think salient points here then the first being the if you go all the way back is stepping out the door i don't know i i didn't look and see what day of the week june 30th was i should have done that but you know, night weeks are typically like two week stretches, right? So you might do two weeks of night week. And then the next time there's a night week or weeks, um, it might be two months or three months down the road. There was probably one more night iteration, but it was probably focused on doing close air support. I imagine as they're going out the door. So, you know, if you don't get this, right, there's only like X number of opportunities. And usually there's only like one or two opportunities. And if this sortie doesn't go on this day, and it's effective, then there's no other opportunity to do it, or there might be one backup, and then that's going to be have a you know a rain or a waterfall effect as far as knocking other people off schedules and things like that. I definitely know there are times like in upgrades where you're looking, you're like, I only got this one day to do it, right? Otherwise, it's not going to happen for three or four months. Um, so that definitely had to be weighing on them. I would imagine I it, it's weighed on me before in the past. And another point I never really thought about reading this was, yeah, like the F-16 is so sensitive that if you go over a bump or if you're going 20 knots, I mean, if you watch it, you know, the nose is just bobbing. Uh, so hitting something in the jet going that fast, the startle effect just alone of having something, but, you know, that jarring effect would, would be really unnerving. So like you said, I think a phenomenal job of, one, having the wherewithal to go around and then calming himself down uh, to be able to go through fly formation, work with a flight lead, work with a soft and go through that checklist. Cause again, that checklist is just absolutely heinous when it comes to digging through it. Yeah, it, sure is. Yeah. You know, it leads into, you know, the, some other aspects of it, which the AIB found was the fact that the supervisor flying. So that F 16 pilot sitting in the tower and there were actually two of them. Cause one was doing an upgrade they did do a conference hotel call. So Lockheed Martin offers services. Um, I imagine to all of its platforms where they can, you know, users such as Shaw Air Force Base, F-16 pilots or F-35s can call Lockheed Martin and they can talk to engineers about these weird type scenarios uh, if there's gas. This is one that um, I know it's in the checklist. I can't, I think I said it in the last episode. I can't say that I would probably have done anything different than the guys sitting in the tower. I, I don't know. I don't know if I would have the wherewithal to do the conference hotel because usually there's just not enough gas. I feel like it's something we like 
talk about an upgrade and kind of brush over. But usually it's emergencies that 99% of the time you've had in the sim, you've had in real life or you've heard about or you've, you know, you've talked about ad nauseum. Um, so this is one that, again, just it's, it's one more piece of, you know, Swiss cheese, right, where the hole lines up. This is, a, I don't know, this is a tough one too. So um, obviously, they, yeah, this is yeah, they, right, yeah, it was like they would have recommended the ejection uh, versus trying to land it. But, uh, you know, those they didn't consider calling them or at least in the AIB. Uh, the upgrading soft consider it, but he didn't voice his opinion about it. Um, and the guy who was actually in the soft position did not, you know, go down the conference hotel route. Yeah. The, so you and I, we've both sat soft and that this one hits close to home too. Again, these guys are all very close friends of mine. So, uh, and I have sat soft with them and discussed things like this with them before. And so I, I agree with you. I don't think I, I don't think I would have done anything differently, which is, you know, that's scary to say something like that because yep. maybe that would have saved measures life, you know, uh, maybe, I don't know, or maybe not, who knows what could have been different, but certainly the, the idea of a conference hotel. Now I think of it differently after reading this report, though I'm not sure that it would exactly work out the way the AIB kind of hopes it would work out, but maybe it would yeah. definitely something to give, uh, to give a shot. Um, but like you said, like it's, I, I don't want to make excuses or anything like that or whatever, like, uh, but it's not getting phones to work in the air force or computers to work. <laughs> like it's, that doesn't happen. Like it's not super easy in the soft tower. That stuff's not like always up to date and always like, I don't know. There's just not a whole lot of faith that we put into like tech, our technology type backups. And that, that's how I've always kind of considered conference hotel. Like this really good idea that no one has ever used. So like, I'm going to call that number and no one's going to have any idea what I'm talking about. I'm never going to get a hold of said person. And there is a ton of stuff that the soft is dealing with right now. Like he's yes. not just sitting there like following through in the checklist, right? He's, there are other airplanes out in the airspace. He's got to figure out how to get them home and the fuel that they're limited to. Uh, he's got to change the runway uh, to make sure that we can try this approach. I mean, there's a ton of stuff that the soft is dealing with. Uh, and so, and, and again, like the right idea, it probably what it probably is in the future to call that conference hotel, try to get that thing established. But I am not surprised that he tabled that so that he could do the other things that he needed to do uh, to try to get this thing resolved. Um, so I think that's a great lesson for, you know, future softs and stuff. And, and so, but again, there's a ton going on for him and he, he successfully got everybody home. He switched the runway, um, which is not, that's not an easy process. It doesn't happen very quickly. He's got to monitor a lot of stuff as that's going on to make sure the cable's ready. Uh, and again, the, this is all happening at night and not super great weather. So it's not, again, 20 minutes might seem like a long time in an AIB when you read it, but 20 minutes goes by really fast. Uh, and again, there's a ton of pieces that are going into this. Um, and so again, like thinking back to the conference hotel, like, I wish, you know, they would have tried it and maybe the outcome would have been different. You know, we hope it would be in the future and stuff, but I think that's, it's, that's a tough, that's a tough thing to pin on, pin on that one decision. Like, I just don't, you know, that's, I'm not sure I buy that completely, but yeah, I think you said a good point not to make excuses for it. Right. Uh -huh. Because maybe that would have changed it. 
But I think the context you just brought to that is really important because in my mind as a soft, right? Um, he's got his element lead out there. They're working as a two ship and that soft is a supporting asset basically at that point to back those guys up. But, you know, my mind, and maybe it's the wrong way to view it, you know, or viewed it would have been, Hey, they're kind of primary and they're working it. And you're kind of like the, you know, the filter to catch anything that's going to drop through. Um, but two, yeah, you think like, all right, if I make this phone call, it's going to take 20 minutes to get an engineer on the phone. And like you said, the runway change, that is no small feat. He does have, I don't know how many other aircraft there are airborne, but he's working their recovery to make sure that those guys know that if they're in the middle of the fight to knock off their fight, to conserve gas, because he doesn't know what's going to happen back in the airfield to get them back to the airfield, get them on the deck to, you know, reduce variables. So there's a lot going on and he's kind of working all those and backing those guys up at the same time. So those are the things that I think the context that not that it's impossible to capture that in the AIB, but I think is really tough to capture in the AIB. And also, yeah, it's the soft fuzzy pieces of being a human being and the things that are going on there. So I, I think the one thing I took away from that was that the upgrading soft thought about the conference hotel, but didn't verbalize it. And so for me, I definitely know I've been in those situations uh, where you're like, this doesn't seem really smart. What are we doing here? And as I got older and I honestly, um, you know, it's probably till I'm, you know, a major and now into this part of the career, like I have no problem saying most of the time, there will definitely be scenarios where I'm sure I won't be perfect, but saying this is a tough call, but it's the right call. We shouldn't do it. Like we actually uh, didn't fly a leg, you know, a revenue leg because of fatigue and some mistakes are made in the checklist amongst the crew, right? Saying, hey, this is kind of dumb. Like, what's the point of doing this? And that's a tough thing to do, to to speak up. So I, I think that's probably like the thing I've taken away the most, right, is I might have a bit of information. It doesn't matter how experienced you are. And if you're flying with a guy who's flown this jet for 3,000 hours, whatever, like, you might have a bit of information to present it. At least do it. Do it appropriately. And if it's taken, great. If not, then, you know, move on. Yeah, I think... Yeah, I think that's just, and I think there are other examples in the AIB or in the events that happen that kind of are that same, you know, a couple of times measure says, you know, like, are you sure this is what I should be doing? So I think, you know, again, not to like put thoughts into everybody's minds because I'm not, I'm not exactly sure, but my, my guess is that that's indicative of him having his, own, he's not comfortable with what's about to happen. Right. Or yeah. kind of that, the thought process is going uh, down and, and again, so to provide a little bit of, like you understand that completely, like I, as a new fighter pilot, you don't want to say, right? Like you're, you know, it's a joke in the fighter pilot world, right? You get three responses, which is whatever, two, you drop fire and save the fat one for me. Like that has its place. Honestly, I think that that's a very important lesson for fighter pilots. Yes. But it's also a very, that translates into, like you said, I don't want to be the wedge. I don't want to be. Uh, questioning things or like not willing to do things that I'm supposed to make happen, like in the culture of being a fighter pilot. Uh, so I, the backup soft is thinking probably the same things like here's a good idea, but I'm unfamiliar with this, you know, environment in the soft tower. So I don't want to get in the way of the soft. Mezzer's um, probably thinking similar things. Like I kind of think that this is like maybe not the best idea, but here are very experienced people who think it is a good idea. So like what's the limit of what I'm willing to say? Or like, how do you, how do you put your foot down? So 
Yeah, it's an art and there's a fine line. I think, you know, it is appropriate for, you know, to lead your own fire and save the fat one for me. Um, there's definitely majority of the time and place for that, right? Where, I mean, brevity is important. There's just not a lot of time to discuss things. But again, it's like, where, yeah, where's the line of voicing your opinion or, you know, hey, I, I think it's like, hey, bring it up, right? And maybe you, you bring it up in a couple different ways if you really feel adamant about it. Uh, but th- yeah, it's tough. Like, I, there's no right or wrong answer here. It's just, there's not time to have a full-on discussion about all your feelings and all your hopes and dreams uh, each and every time. So there's a blend of, yeah, if you think you really got a good point, you need to be a good salesman and sell it really quick. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, it's an art. And again, there's no right or wrong way of, of doing it. Uh, at least I haven't figured it out yet. Yeah, I agree. And from the perspective of a, like an instructor, like you've been there too, we, you want those pieces of information. Like, it's not like, you know, I don't know everything. I don't know. You know, the more experience I got at 16, like it was very clear to me that I was missing a lot of you know, I did not know probably as much as I should have known. You know, you start to understand all the things that you really don't understand, you know, that you don't understand right. or remember. Anyway, so that is an important lesson. Like it's the soft, you know, again, I hate to go back and like things like, oh, it should have been done this way. But as a soft, as an instructor, pilot, evaluator, pilot, you want input, right? So I would encourage, you know, younger pilots, if you have a question and it and is, like if it's something you have to be able to distinguish between something that is vital to the success of the mission or to safety of flight, like you have got to voice it up because it's not, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not thinking that necessarily as the instructor, the soft isn't necessarily thinking that again, he's got a lot of stuff going on. So I think you're exactly right. It is an art form. And then, but you know, we, the experienced guys don't have all the information or they're not necessarily processing all that information. So it's important to, speak up, uh, throw out the good ideas that you think will be, in, you know, important to safely completing the mission or yeah. bringing the jets home. Safe. Like you said, maybe the experienced guy is not processing all of it. Definitely been on that side of, you know, the coin. Yeah. These are short radio calls back and forth and, you know, everyone's managing a lot of different things going on. Everyone's got a lot on their mind. So I don't know that, that that's kind of like my biggest you know, take away from the soft and like voicing your opinion. And again, it, it's something that is important to do and figuring out how to do it appropriately at the right time is something to definitely, I think, take with you and, you know, try to hone and refine that. So, um, you know, the worst, not the worst, I mean, the worst part of this, right, obviously is measure, you know, there's a fatal result here, but the fact that, you know, when he comes into land, the jet, the left main, is not going to support the weight of the jet. He starts rolling, he ejects. So the seat fails, the digital recovery sequencer, the DRS, I think that's the, there's a lot of acronyms in this AIB, um, doesn't work, right? So he, he doesn't get a shoot. You know, that, um, that unit was supposed to be replaced multiple times and kept getting service life, service life extensions. I think it actually showed up to Shaw about a month before this mis- mishap, or it showed up in the month of May or the mishap and to consolidate maintenance efforts, the seat and the whole jet was going to be cannibalized, become a, you know, parts jet. And that's a normal cycle for, for maintenance. Um, they pushed it off until July. So I think it was going to come, that jet was actually going to come off the line on July 8th. So about a week after the mishap and everything was going to be fixed. Um, and again, I, I don't know what the, 
yeah, what procedures are going to change, if any are going to change uh, with it. But it's a suit. I mean, talk about this. I absolutely like worst thing. I never, I never even thought about my seat not working. Right. Like I always had that as my get out of jail free card when everything went south. So the fact that that didn't work, um, obviously is tragic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the whole, I mean, this is a tough, all AIBs are tough when there's a fatality. Uh, this one's really tough for me because I, again, knowing the squadron really well and the guys well that were involved, but, and then now the, just the seat not working at the end, it's just the, you know, it's just so sad and want to be able to, if you could pin like one thing that needed to work, you know, like to, to make this all like the thing in my mind that is not black and white is the seat needs to work. Like it's got to work. Yep. Cause we're asking fighter pilots to, again, these planes are, I mean, they're flying around it. We do crazy stuff with these airplanes. Like refueling is something that you and I and other people who have done it a, a thousand times, like you don't even think about but in reality, the precision of taking gas is like, you know, it's incredible. These airplanes are moving fast. They're in tough environments and you're taking, you're touching another airplane to like get fuel. Yeah. From it. Like it's pretty incredible. And that's just something that we don't even think about. Right. That's like, that's an admin piece of the mission that, that is so not simple, but it's just not even close to as complicated as the mission actually gets. So we don't even talk about it. Right. Yeah. Uh, put your pants on go to work anyway so that's just to say like it is so hard to to expect i don't know how many pages of regulations and guidance and uh whatever tactics manuals i mean there's probably fifty thousand pages of instructions that an f-16 pilot is supposed to have read and digested to be able to operate his aircraft like obviously you and i don't have fifty thousand pages of information memorized right so in my mind, like those things, like the seat needs to work because I don't know it all. Like I can't react fast enough in every situation. And that's what, you know, that's why there are seats in these aircraft. Uh, anyway, so to me again, like that's the, the whole thing is tragic, but this, this part of it is especially sad to me that, uh, you know, that the, just the coincidence of it should have been replaced and it was going to be replaced in a couple of days, but it wasn't at the moment that it was needed. Like that's all, you know, it's just so sad. Um, at the same time, maintenance is, we're very familiar with what risk, you know, you can't mitigate all risk uh, anywhere, especially not in a fighter right. uh, squadron. And so again, the main, they're trying to get jets ready to go. So I understand that, you know, I don't think there was negligence. I don't think the AIB suggested there's any negligence yeah. either. But it does, it shows like we are buying risk by not doing, you know, by extending service life and, and things like that. And we get very, I think, I, I wouldn't even, you wouldn't, if you saw open write-ups in the airplane, like these things are going to be replaced. Like it wouldn't even, you wouldn't even notice it because we do it all the time. Like that stuff happens all the time. Um, yeah. It's not done, I, yeah, it's not done lightly. It's bad, but you're buying risk. Yeah. That's, yeah, I think buying risk is way is, these are these are not done lightly. I mean, maintenance is sitting in meetings multiple times a day with leadership, and they're looking at every single jet and every single ride up. They're tracking them, and again, I, that that particular one was probably elevated to a very high level. I would imagine to have that signed off to buy that risk. It's like anything; you have to make sacrifices somewhere. You either don't fly, or you fly and know that in the event of something happening, hopefully that's a small percentage 
there's a risk that X, Y, or Z might fail. And this is, again, the Swiss cheese model. Like, yeah, the star is aligned in a horrible direction. And all these things where the risk was bought with the seat, like it, the worst fear came true with it. Um, and it's like, yeah, it's just absolutely completely tragic. The fact that it, it, it did not work. Yeah. It's, that's an interesting little, I don't know. I was going to try to think what I was going to say about yeah, that. The, yeah. the other thing I was thinking about, like the normalization of deviance. And I know this is like the space. Was it, was it Columbia? Right. And it did like yeah. 120 missions and they always came back with the tiles slightly chipped. Right. And then is it Columbia that burned up? If I mess that up, I apologize. But, you know, that was the causal factor, right? All the ice on the launch that was chipping away after a hundred and something missions was not an issue, but that was what ended up resulting in it burning up on reentry because we just kind of accepted the fact that this is, this deviance is normal. So normalization of deviance. Um, and I don't, I don't know. We're, we're, it, this is buying risk in those in the situations. It's kind of apples and oranges, but it's somewhat related, I think. Yeah, I think so. I, it's interesting. I mean, there's a ton of stuff we can talk about, and even even after you kind of identify all these issues, like it's not necessary that you can change. Yeah. Like if you would have seen that open right up, it would have been nice to know. You know, if you just think like, oh, this write up was open in this aircraft, which means like it was there was going to be a problem with the automatic sequencer. So you might have to use the handle. Like that's great information that, you know, it would be awesome to have known that's what that meant before the sortie, right? I don't know if that's a realistic expectation for maintenance to be able to communicate all those kinds of things to the pilots. But I don't think measure, I would not have known looking at the write-up, like this thing is overdue for inspection or for replacement, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Like I wouldn't have read that and understood what the implications of that would have been. Uh, and, but it is, it is interesting. Had he known what the implications of that would have been, had the soft known what the implications of that TCTO would have been, I think certainly they would have made a different decision. I think like, Hey, if he ejects, you know, under a certain amount of thousands of feet, like he's not, the thing's probably not going to work or it could not work. And so he's going to have to have time to pull it. If the soft would have had that information, and the mishap element lead and measure like they the plan would have been different. So I'm, again, I'm not saying that he should have like I mean it should have made that very clear or anything like right. maybe that's not a realistic expectation. But it is important to realize that, that again there was a piece of vital information that was not that was not understood by the the okay. people who it impacted. Yeah, I think you make a good point, right? I mean, there's so many, you know, on the pilot side, right? 50,000 pages, right? That's a guess, but that's probably realistic as far as information you have to know. The maintenance side of the house, like probably magnify that, you know, by 10 when it comes to figuring out all the different parts and pieces. And there's just so many moving pieces of it. Um, and I know like looking at the forms, right? Like I would walk up the crew chief, like good jet, right? And like, I'm really looking at inspections, tires, like cursory stuff, right? Because if it is typed and written in there and the forms are, it's a, that's what you go through before you accept the jet to hop in and go fly. Uh, if it is typed in there, right? Like I know other people have looked at it and like this thing is good. So I'm really looking at, you know, expiration dates and things like that. I know if I had seen the digital recovery sequencer, whatever, you know, push to whatever date, like I would not have thought, I would not have given it another thought whatsoever. But that is a good point. Like what if you had, like, if you had that bit of information, it definitely would have changed my calculus stepping out the door knowing that. 
And yeah, in fact, you know, they had one other failure that they mentioned the AIB, the Tulsa IP, who is at altitude, super experienced guy. And it still took him like five seconds to do the manual override handle and get man seat separation. Now, Mezzer had no chance whatsoever. Like there have been no chance for any, any pilot. I think it said it like three and a half, 3.67 seconds is what he had to recognize the failure, pull the handle and to get a shoot. There's no way, I mean, I would be able to do it, and I would argue that probably any F-16 pilot or any fighter pilot, for that matter, if they were put in that same scenario, would have thought to reach down and pull that handle at that point. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I don't think so. I certainly know I wouldn't have. And that it reminds me of the, there was an F-35 mishap at, uh, in Florida where he ejected on, pretty much on the runway after the landing. The aircraft became un, uncontrollable. Uh, so he ejected from the ground, basically. And when he described his ejection, he, he even says like, I don't, he doesn't remember pulling the handle. He doesn't remember anything except for he's on the ground after it's all done and his helmet's gone or something. And, you know, he's like, he thought like, oh, like, I just, like, this is what death is, you know? But anyway, so I'm saying like, that was probably a seven to eight second or who knows, maybe it was 15 seconds from him pulling the handle to getting on the ground and, and he had no you know, recollection or, yeah. or he could remember ever going through any thought process. So again, like you said, like three seconds. <clears throat> yeah, sure. It's like doable. Uh, if you say it like that, but <clears throat> it is not executionable or executable. I should say. Right. You gotta be spring loaded uh, and know it's going to happen. Well, I mean, yeah, it's, it's impossible. Yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. It would take me two seconds prior to like, think like, where is this handle? <laughs> you know, I would start like, I pulled a green ring probably have a, like I think my emergency <laughs> oxygen accidentally before I actually got to the override handle. And, but it, I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, crap, I, I need to study the F-35 seat. <laughs> like, yeah. Who knows what I would do in an F-35 seat. I'd probably freaking throw, I don't even know what switches are on the thing. So <laughs> it just senses what you want to do. Right. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. This is a tough one. I, Bender, I appreciate you kind of going through, I think a lot of the context there that is, is not able to be captured in the AIB is important to kind of build the picture around it. Um, and this is one I think you and I both agree that, I, I mean, I can envision myself in this scenario, like I can, any different plug and play, right. Making the same decisions that these guys made because it's incredibly challenging and there's just so much data and so many things that are happening so fast that it, again, you hope that with the processes we have in place, that at some point it's going to block the error going through the Swiss cheese model and sometimes it doesn't right. And it just lines up. And in this case, like it just ends in tragedy. So, um, you know, hearts go out to, to Mezzer's family uh, on the website. We got the Lieutenant Smith, a link to the Lieutenant Smith's foundation.org. You can go there and donate in his, uh, his memory and keep his legacy going, helping young, young people aspire into aviation. Uh, they'll help them out. So check that again, Bender. I really appreciate you taking the time today and, and helping out. Yeah, I'm happy to do it. I, I love, I mean, again, I didn't know Mezzer very well, but um, same thing. Heart goes out to him, especially to his bros who love, you know, it's a tight community. They loved him, they cared for him, they would have done anything for him. So to, to see them kind of suffer through it also, you know, it, it it's, a, it's a tragedy for everybody, you know. It's so, the gamblers now are, they're downrange doing uh, God's work, so. And heart goes out to them too. Wish them all the best of luck down there. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. So 
Um, yeah, I appreciate you taking the time to do this and double down. Double down. The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain.